someone has left me a hymnal. Would you like that? Well, you're welcome. I don't know. Maybe people want me to sing. Is that why the hymnal was here? Would you like a little? No. Well, well not, we won't do that. Um, okay. Week 10. Yes. I would scold you for being late, but it's too late to scold you for being late. I'm just glad you're all still here. Thank you for coming. We'll just leave it at that. This week, I came into work at the office, and one of you, I don't know who it was, left a giant bag of maxi pads sitting on my desk. Thank you. I think my coworkers are a little concerned about me. But thank you, and I did add it to the pile, so don't do that anymore. Uh, Yeah, and then... Lastly, in the fall, we will be going back to the Old Testament. Those of you who have done the study for a while know that we alternate years in Old Testament, New Testament. And so how many of you have done one of the Old Testament studies before? Oh my gosh, that's so fantastic. So how do you feel about studying the Old Testament? Right. And I think some of the girls who maybe haven't spent a lot of time there need to hear your enthusiasm because we're going to be studying Joshua and Judges. And sometimes you hear that and you're like, oh. But we are going to have a fantastic time studying Joshua and Judges. We'll do Joshua in the fall and Judges in the spring. And so we will, you'll be seeing information on that from us, but we will do, uh, registration will open August 4th. And then we will start the study September 2nd, and it'll be 11 weeks, just like it was this past fall. It'll run up to not the week immediately before Thanksgiving, it'll run up like through November 11th, I think is what it is. So you can let whoever you want to know that, and there will be more information forthcoming on that, but hope you'll come back in the fall for that. So we are on our final week where we're teaching through or going through the actual text. And then next week we'll have a chance to sort of go back and get that bird's eye view. We'll look down from a high level again. That'll be your homework for, and I know it was a homework. Homework was a little long this week too. Can you tell that in recent years I have had someone who's been doing quality control for me and she'll call me and be like, what was up with week seven? It was way too long. And then I cut out some questions. Yeah, well, she didn't get to do that for this curriculum. So I'm literally doing my own homework homework this week thinking, when does it end? So, so sorry. Hope you did at least most of it. Um, But we, next week you will have short homework. I can promise you that. It's going to be a chance to sort of back away, as I said, and kind of look at the big picture and say, what are we taking away from this? And what is the thing that we think is now the key theme of the book and all those kinds of things? Because I say at the beginning of each one of my studies, I want you to know the book of James when we get done. I do want that. But more than that, I want you to know how to read your Bible differently than you did before. And part of that is at the beginning, we start and we try to get a feel for generally where are we heading. And then we go head through. And at the end, we go back and say, what do we think now about where we thought we were going at the beginning? That's one of the things you need to do is go back and evaluate. Hey, I thought it was going to be like this, but now I know that it is like this. So that's what the purpose of next week's lesson will be. So if you're angry at me because this week was long and you're like, I'm done. I'm done with the homework. Please give it a shot next week. I think it will be helpful and it'll actually help. It will help. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Oh, I'm back. I'm back. There's no one back there in the sound booth. Oh, hey. Hey there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Just so you guys know, when it cuts out like that, sometimes I repeat myself for the sake of the podcast. So don't think that I have some sort of 
wiring problem in my head. I'm doing that so we can, I probably do have a wiring problem in my head, but I'm doing that for the sake of the recording as well. So, okay, speaking of repetition, one of the things that's great about the start of this week's passage is you probably noticed that James is going into his windup, right? He's about to wrap things up, and so he begins to reiterate things that he has talked about throughout the letter. And as a parent, I know that I do this, right? Like when I've given my whole, hey, this is what you guys need to do, and here's why. After I've I've given it all out, then I start repeating the things that were most important. And that's what we're going to see James do. He's going to reiterate some of the points that he's made earlier. But last week we saw that genuine faith submits to God's will. We saw that genuine faith submits to God's will, and we saw that in three key areas. That it, we submit to God's will with regard to the issue of slander. That we say, I will not self-elevate by slandering someone else. I will submit to God's will that I make myself lower and I make others higher. So slander is taken off the table for the believer. And then the next thing that we need to submit is in the area of boasting. And that was where we say, oh, I'm going to do this or that, you know, in five years or in 10 years or tomorrow. And we looked at that whole issue at length about how we say, no, if it be the will of the Lord. And we acknowledge that we don't know what the future holds. And then the third area where we submit to the Lord was in the area of our possessions. And we looked at hoarding and we basically said... We submit to the Lord as the provider of everything that we need. And so we don't try to feather our nest here. We don't try to make this the most awesome place. We allow for that to be happening at a future time when we go to be with him. So we saw last week that genuine faith submits to God's will. And this week we will begin to see that genuine faith speaks with integrity speaks with integrity. So we've seen James talk about how we use our tongues and how we use speech before, but tonight he's going to do something a little different. He'll give us a couple of negative forms of speech, and then he's going to move towards positive forms of speech. So he's going to talk about how we shouldn't grumble, and he's going to talk about how we shouldn't swear oaths, and then he's going to talk about things we should do. We should praise. We should pray. We should confess. We should engage in loving confrontation with other believers. So there are going to be positive and negative uses, but his focus has really shifted to not do not but more to here's what you should do so let's dive in and see what he has to say to us we're in James chapter 5 we'll be covering verses 7 through 20 tonight and we have a lot to cover and you guys kind of lagged in here so now you're going to pay you ready okay starting in verse 7 James says this be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. So let's stop there. We'll stop at the end of verse 11 and see what we can take from this opening section. So you'll notice last week we had three sections of the text that we took and one of them began with my brothers and then we had two that did not begin that way, right? They began with you who say or listen, you know, and it was this whole listen up people and it was this address, come now you who say. And he addressed it to this broader understanding that within the community of believers there will be the those who have only a nominal belief or it looks like they have belief but it doesn't actually translate into action in fact it may translate into some very ugly behaviors like hoarding and boasting and now he is bringing it back around and he's changing back to that familiar language that he's used throughout the letter he's narrowing his focus again and he says be patient therefore brothers 
until the coming of the Lord. And he says, notice, what did he say? Because there's an important word there. First, we saw patient repeated over and over and over again to the point where you're like, stop. Okay, I get it. I need to be patient. And he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And anytime we see that word therefore, what do we have to ask? What is the therefore Therefore, and so what is James wanting us to understand? He's saying in light of everything we have been discussing, you're going to endure physical lack. You're going to endure the rejection of those who once included you in their community because you shared their religious belief and now that you, now you don't. You are going to be the outcasts of society. These are the things that are coming for you and you will find a way to rejoice in them knowing that they are pointing towards a greater joy at a future time. He says, now that you realize that this is your situation here on this earth, be patient, therefore. Be patient with the way that things are now because you know that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And you looked in your homework. I had you look at other places where we had this at-hand language. And you saw that when John the Baptist began his ministry, what was the sermon that he was preaching as he went out and began to preach? It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. And then you saw that Jesus, when he begins his earthly ministry and he begins to preach, what is his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when he gives, he sends out the 12 and he says, here is the message that you will preach when you go out to the area surrounding here. What is their message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's exactly what James is saying here. He's saying, do you realize that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And this is a cause for you to be patient. So in what sense is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Well, it has already come in the person of Christ. It has already come with his first coming, but it is not yet consummated, right? So we talk about the three Ps all the time in here. We say that when you are saved, when you are justified, you are free from the penalty of sin. And when did that happen? It came with Christ dying on the cross for your sins, right? But now we are in a season of life where we are being sanctified and we are being freed from the second P, which is the power of sin. So now we choose right things, whereas before we only chose wrong things, our Desires are being purified, and that is our sanctification. We talked last week, this is the will of God for your life, that you be sanctified, that you begin to have power over sin, and you begin to reject the temptation when it comes your way. And so in this sense, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is as close as our hand. We can avail ourselves of the power of the Holy Spirit to choose rightly when temptation comes along. But do we always? No, that is because the kingdom has already come in one sense, but it has not come all the way yet. It is the already and the not yet. And when that third P happens, when we are delivered from the very presence of sin, because we are delivered into the very presence of God, then the kingdom will have come in its completion. So it has come, it is coming, it will come in fullness. That is where we are with salvation. So when we say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that we should be patient, what are we being patient with? We're being patient with our sin. We're being patient with the sin of others. And we say we know that this is a temporary situation here and that one day we will not just be removed from temptation to sin. We will not sin anymore. Sin will go away. It will not be around us. This is a joyful thing because even if during this life you were able to become sinless, Would the other people around you be able to? No, and it is a source of grief to be around the presence of sin. And this is why in his presence there is fullness of joy because you are no longer in the presence of sin at all. 
So the kingdom is already and not yet at hand. Notice the illustration that he gives us in verse 7. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So he gives them here a very familiar image that they would know because they're way more agrarian than you and I are. Um, I'm a gardener. I know there are other gardeners in the room, but many of us don't spend a lot of time out learning about growth cycles and when things bud and when things fruit. And because we can go to the grocery store and get whatever we want anytime we want, we're not very aware that there are seasons to things. Like that strawberries are only in season for a certain time of year. And then they're not in season anymore. We have a seasonless understanding of the growth cycle because we can go and get things whenever we want. But Jesus' hearers and James's hearers knew differently. And that is why Jesus and James use so frequently this kind of image, this image of a farmer who is planting. Because the business of growing crops is the business of being patient, is it not? And so he says the farmer waits for the early rains, the spring rains, and then the late rains, the rains that come right before the harvest time because he knows that that is what it requires for the fruit to come forth. But here's the thing. I can't just tell you, hey, be patient because that's the way farmers are. You need to understand that there's a bigger issue here. There's a bigger call to be patient and to stand firm. And it's this. When Jesus gives the parable of the sower and the seed, you know, the one where the guy, the farmer comes out and he casts out the seed and some falls on the rocky soil and some falls on the path and some falls in the thorns and some falls on the fertile soil. Jesus gives the interpretation for that parable. So there are some parables where we're like, I have no idea what he said and I have no idea what he means. But in that particular instance, the disciples are straight up, they just go to him and they're like, we don't get it. And he says, well, I will tell you what this means. And do you know who the the farmer is in that parable? What does Jesus say? He says, the farmer is who? The son of man. The farmer is God. The farmer is Jesus himself bringing the gospel and casting it out broadly, right? And so why are we to be patient that the Lord will bring about fruitfulness in our lives? We are to be patient because he is patient. He is patient. And so here we have this beautiful example of where we are given an opportunity, we are given a call to take on a characteristic that is true about God. God is steadfast. God knows to wait. God knows exactly how long it will take to bring fruitfulness about. And so we then can be like that. But what do we do? Well, we saw last week what we do. We try to take on characteristics of God that are only true of God and can never be true of us. That's what boasting is. It's when we say, I want to know the future and I want to control the future. That belongs only to God. And so I spend all of my energy chasing after becoming like God in a way that is idolatrous. How about hoarding? What is that? I can provide for myself. I'm self-sufficient. I can guard against the wrath to come. I can do whatever I want as long as I have all of my stuff. But who alone is self-sufficient? God is. And so I spend all of my time and all of my energy pursuing something that is meant to be only true about God and that for me to ascribe to myself is idolatry. And yet all of this time he is saying, do you see that there are things that are true about me that can absolutely be true about you? And they're far better for you to pursue. Patience. Wisdom. James has talked about wisdom. Integrity of speech. We'll see in a minute that the reason we must be full of integrity with regard to our speech is because Our words matter because God's words matter. And God is a person of integrity in his speech. So he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. 
And does the farmer fret over his seeds growing? Anybody read Frog and Toad? Anybody a big reader in here? Pick up a little Frog and Toad every now and then. Arnold LaBelle. Love Frog and Toad. And there's that one story where Toad, like I want to identify with Frog because he's so sweet and he's kind and he thinks, but honestly, I look at neurotic Toad and I'm like, me, that's me. And so he plants a garden in one story. And then he puts all the seeds in the ground, and then he's like staring at the ground waiting because he just thinks that as soon as he plants the seeds, they're going. he doesn't understand what the farmer that James mentions understands, that it's a, a waiting process and that you have to wait for the rains and you have to wait for the proper cycles to happen. And so he plays a violin and he reads poetry and he does all of these things to help the seeds grow and he ends up yelling at them, now seeds start growing. And it's ridiculous and it's wonderful because finally he falls asleep and what happens? The seeds start to sprout at just the right time. At just the right time, those seeds begin to grow. The Lord feels no anxiety over the crop that he has planted. We see that in the parable of the sower. He is not alarmed that the seed that fell on the path did not turn into fruitful plants. He knew it wouldn't. He is not alarmed that the seed that fell on the the thorns did not turn into fruitful plants or that the seed that fell into the rocky soil because he knew that the seed that ended up in the fertile soil under the good conditions of the late rains and the early rains would absolutely bear fruit, and that is you and me. Many people hear the gospel. Not all of them bear fruit. But those who are fertile soil do. So just as our Heavenly Father is patient and knows that the process can be trusted to in due time bring about fruit, so we also are to be like that. And one of the things that this will require of us is something that is not common to us at all, particularly in our culture, and that is the idea of delayed gratification or deferred gratification. We have what we want when we want it. I confess to you that when I found out that Amazon.com was working on drones, I was thrilled out of my mind. I'm like, my ink cartridge could be on my porch 30 minutes after I order it. Fantastic. I wanted the Girl Scouts to get hooked up with them. So that my Thin Mints would just get dropped on my porch the second I thought about them. We don't have to wait for anything. We have lost our sense of what it means to wait. And so as much as possible, we look for ways to eliminate waiting or to make waiting not feel like waiting. And so if I'm sitting somewhere, you know, it used to be 10 years ago, if you had to sit and wait for the bus or wait for whatever, what did you do? I guess you talked to the person next to you. I don't even remember anymore because now what do we do? We all stare at our phones, right? And we do the same thing with our children. We're like, here, do this or play with this or hold this or chew on this or eat this or, you know, color this or whatever. There's always something to do that doesn't involve just waiting. We've lost our sense of what it means to be those who wait. And so then what happens? Sooner or later, life, or as we would say, the Lord, is going to send a circumstance your way in which there is nothing you can do but wait on the outcome in which you are powerless to control the outcome and you are powerless to speed the outcome. Have you ever been pregnant? That's a positive example of this. There's nothing you can do to hurry that process, right? And that's a joyful thing to wait on. But the kind of waiting that he's talking about here is waiting that is under a very difficult circumstance in which you feel like you have no control. And so I have to ask you, are you a person who eliminates every sense that you have of having to wait like, do you love that you don't have to watch the commercials anymore when you watch a TV show? You remember, we used to have to wait on the commercials. 
Like we used to mute it because we were, we were good like that. You know, like we're not going to be contaminated by what's on the commercials. Now I don't even have to look at it. It's fantastic. I don't have to wait for anything. I don't have to wait for the whole season of Downton Abbey to come out. I can go out and find it on some bootleg website and watch the whole thing. It's wrong, so wrong. And don't you post about it on Facebook. <laughs> and we're like, oh, I don't want to wait. And I don't have to wait, so I'm not going to wait. But what if there is something intrinsically good in the discipline of waiting? What if it prepares us for times when we have no choice but to wait at all? Anybody in here observe Lent? That's a, that's a way that we impose on ourselves waiting that we would not otherwise have to have. We defer gratification. We delay gratification for a greater purpose. But what if Lent were not something that happened every spring before Easter? What if it were kind of a lifestyle thing for us? What if we saw the thing that we just feel like we have to have when we want it and we began to deny ourselves of it for the sheer purpose of building the discipline of being able to wait well? be interesting. I think it would help us when difficult times come where we don't have control. So he says in verse 8, you also be patient just like the farmer, just like the son of man. Establish your hearts. The NIV says stand firm for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then in verse 9, do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold the judge is standing at the door. So we talked about this. We talked about judging and what that looks like for the believer. And we talked, and we'll have to talk about it again in just a minute when we talk about bringing a brother back who has wandered. But that whole idea of, hey, be careful. You know, don't go around grumbling against one another. And what is grumbling? What's the thing with grumbling? Like, grumbling implies that I can't quite hear what you said. What was it? It's kind of under your breath. It's kind of like you have your own monologue going on where you're the queen of the world and everyone has offended you. It's that kind of thing. And what have you done? You've judged everybody around you and found them lacking and it's made you mad and so you're grumbling about it. And he's saying to them again, be careful, don't go around doing that because you're passing judgment. And I'm telling you, the judge is standing at the door. So when my kids, when the laundry room has finally exploded to the point that you can't wedge your way in there, which is bad because that's where my extra refrigerator is where I hoard things. And so if I can't get in there to my hoard of um, frozen meat that I bought on the clearance aisle, I'll get in there and I'll take, I'll just kind of take all of the laundry that has accumulated and I dump it out in the middle of the living room floor and I say, there will be no more meals served until this is gone. And then they all go out there and they sit down and they begin to sort and untangle and try to get through all this giant pile of laundry that should have been dealt with in the first place. And so then what do you think happens? Well, you know, they're under duress, they're in a stressful situation and so what do they begin to do? They begin to grumble, right? They begin to grumble at one another. Someone's mad because he didn't get a sock from the other person or someone, you've got my stuff or you've got to let me go through your pile and all the grumbling begins. But do you know what happens when they know that I am standing in the kitchen watching them instead of when I'm standing in the laundry room and can't hear them? Tone of that conversation changes. Why? Because they know that the judge is standing at the door. And so it's interesting here because what we see is, hey, you know, you may think that God is far, but God is near. Remember we said that the coming of the Lord was at hand. Do you understand that he has come and he is coming again? But the Lord is everywhere fully present. And do we think of that when we believe that we are having that monologue just with ourselves or when we believe that we're grumbling under our breath, that with the Lord there is no such thing as grumbling under your breath? He knows. And not only does he hear your words, but he sees your heart. 
And so we will be judged for those kind of things. We will not be pronounced guilty and assigned to hell because we have Christ. But we will absolutely, as we've seen, give an account for every word that we speak. And the thing is, is that's for our good. That's for our good. So it's good to be reminded that the judge is standing at the door. The just judge, as we have seen him called. And then he says, as an example of suffering and patience, in verse 10, Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Do you know about the prophets? Do you know how their lives went? He assumes that you will know it, but I don't know if you do. Have you read Hebrews 11? Do you know what it says about them? That they were stoned, that they were beaten, that they were driven around from place to place, that they lived basically the lives of homeless people being pursued by people who wanted to kill them, that in some cases they were sawn in two. That's what the prophets got. Those are the ones of whom Jesus said to us, Blessed are you when people persecute you and revile you and speak all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. You are blessed when you are treated in such a way. Do you see this upside-down economy of the kingdom of heaven where we call blessed who the rest of the world would call absolutely cursed? And that's what he is saying. He's saying, no, this is blessedness. You know what the author of Hebrews says? This kills me. He gives this description, this graphic description of the terrible and violent ends that these men met with and the the conditions that they endured. And then he says, the world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them. And I read that and I think, at my funeral... (laughs) Would people stand up and point to the example of my life and say the world was not worthy of her, that this ground was not worthy for her feet to touch it? I have not endured. I have not had to be steadfast to the extent that those people have. And when I contemplate it, do I look at it and be in my head thinking, is there a way to consider that joy? Is there a way to reckon that as joy, knowing that it is pointing me toward a greater thing? No one wants those things to happen to them. But it's good to acknowledge that when they do, a person who walks through that kind of trial knows some things about the faithfulness of God that a person like me doesn't. And he's going to give us another example that's going to point us to that even more. In verse 11b, he says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Oh my gosh, can I just tell you, we decided to do Job for our family devotional time. Oh, let's go light and fluffy and read about Job with our small children. Have you read the story of Job? Have you even read a piece of it? I mean, he gets hit again and again and again. And we see at the end that he's restored. But let's be honest about the way that his fortunes are restored. Because what did he lose at the beginning of that book? Do you remember? His children. So it says later that he has more children, but I don't know about you, but if I had lost children and had new children, it wouldn't be like, oh, sweet, we're even. No, you would never, ever feel that way. I think we can say with confidence that Job did not see his full reward from the Lord until he went to be with the Lord. Why is the example of Job given to us in Scripture? Well, I think one reason is because no matter how bad your day is, You know, I'm always amazed when people are going through a very difficult trial and I'll be saying, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? And they'll always, almost always, a believer will find a way to say, you know what? 
it's hard and it's bad, but you know what? I heard about so-and-so and they had this going on in their life and I thought to myself, man, at least I'm not that person. And that's what Job does for us. He is always our, I'm having a bad time, but at least I'm not going through that. But here James tells us another reason that that story is in the Bible, and it's a beautiful reason. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the what? Purpose. The purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And here, James is referencing a familiar passage. It would be a familiar passage to his listeners. It's Exodus 34, 6 and 7, a very significant passage for us. It is the scene where Moses has asked the Lord to show him his glory. And God says, you can't handle the truth, basically. He's like, you know what? I love you. Why don't you go and stand in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by you and you will see my glory in a way that will not kill you. And then the Lord passes by and he speaks these words. And it is the very first time that he gives voice to a description of himself. So the ultimate truth teller, the one who cannot tell an untruth, speaks the absolute truth about his own character. And do you know what he says? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. You know what the NIV says? Compassionate. Gracious, listen to the rest of this description, slow to anger. Sound familiar? And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Do you hear James echoing these themes again and again in his message? And then he says in verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, Or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So he wants us to understand something that Jesus has touched on again in the Sermon on the Mount. And you got to look at it this week. It was that whole idea of, hey, don't swear by the temple. Don't swear by a hair on your head. Don't swear on your mother's grave. And what was the point? Is it that we're not supposed to say the Pledge of Allegiance? Was it that we're never supposed to take an oath? Like, I don't know about you, but I grew up just thinking that anything that had to do with not swearing just meant that we weren't supposed to say dirty words. And then I found out the scripture had a much deeper, deeper message that, that it needed to communicate with regard to this oath-taking issue. And it's this. Why would you swear by anything if you are as good as your word? If you speak a word in integrity and if you practice what you preach, and what has, what has James's message been all along? He has said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. And a person who can listen to the word and deceive themselves is probably a person who can listen to the word and then spit the word back out to everybody around him. But what does James say? Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so what he's saying here is, if you are doing what you are saying, there is no need for you to swear an oath. And think about the ways that we do this. Like we say, uh, okay, I'll just tell you straight up. I had a little issue when my kids were taking piano lessons and it was like right around the corner in the neighborhood where I would sort of forget to go pick them up. Like it's a pretty day and I'm out on the patio and the birds are singing and 
you know, and like Carrie, my neighbor knows because she'll drive by and she can see me sitting out there, you know, and it's, we wave at each other. Well, many of the times that I'm waving at Carrie as she's driving home, some child is sitting just rotting at piano, practicing steadfastness and patience on my behalf. And so um, I began to uh, hear from my children that they would prefer that I actually come when the lesson was over. <clears throat> And so then we would have conversations like this. Mom, what time is my lesson over? Uh, 5.15. That's right. Mom, are you going to be there at 5.15? Yes, I promise. I'll be there at 5.15. Why you got to say you promise? Just show up, right? But this is what we do, isn't it? No, I swear. I'll be there. No, I promise. No, I mean it. Or we tell a story and we've made the story a little bigger than it really needed to be. And what do we say? No, for real. No, I mean it. No, for real. And what are we doing? We are swearing an oath. We are saying that what we have said needs to be backed up with strong words because what we've said is weak. All I have to do is show up at 515 and I never have to promise again that I'll be there because I'm as good as my word. And so what James is saying here is let your word be your bond. Do what you say you're going to do. And and you don't need an oath. Now, there are times when it's appropriate to take an oath, and you saw some of those in Scripture. There are times when we formally enter into an agreement and we sign it with a certain um, combination of words. But that's not what he's talking about here. He is talking about bolstering a weak argument or bolstering a weak position by saying, No, I mean it. No, for real. No, I swear. No, I promise. So we have to be so careful that we are people who don't need to say those things. You know why? Because why would you call someone to witness your words with an oath when you know that the judge is standing at the door? God witnesses all of our words. That should be enough for us to be as good as our word. You notice he says, above all. Above all, my brothers, do not swear. So he's saying, hey, this is a really important thing for you to focus on. Why? Because as I said earlier, we need to use words with integrity because our Heavenly Father does. This is another way that we take on an attribute that is true of him, something that he says, I want you to have this thing that is true of me be true about you. Be a person who uses words with integrity. Then verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Okay, so we see several things here. First we see, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Does this sound like any other passage we've seen? Do you remember that beginning in week one or week two actually is when we covered it? And he said, does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God. So is anyone among you suffering? Yes. Maybe not today, but last week, tomorrow? Yes. And so what does he say? Let him pray. And then he says, is anyone cheerful? And half of you are like, no. But some of you, because I meet you people all the time, you are always cheerful. And like, I want you to drive me crazy, but at the end of the day, I need you, right? I need you on the day that I can't 
muster it because I am one of the people who is suffering or I'm the one of the people who's hard-pressed. And I can tell you, it's a hard thing sometimes to do something like this. It can be hard. And there are faces out there. There are some of you who I, I have a stack of the cards that you've written for me. Keep doing it. Thank you. It means a lot. Things like that, that I need your cheer. I need your encouragement. Those kinds of things. And I know that you again and again have come and done that for me. I haven't asked you for it. And in my own nature, I forget to do that for other people. But some people, I believe, have the spiritual gift of cheerfulness. They are encouragers. And they continue to be cheerful even in the face of great adversity because the Lord has just given that to them. And they know that they need to give that to other people. So if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. In a public way, make known that you have joy in your heart because the rest of us need it. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So let's see. What's being said here is if someone is sick, go to who would be regarded as the most wise, the most senior in the faith. Go to those people and ask them to pray over you. And then it says, anoint with oil, right? So what's going on there? Well, it could be a ceremonial anointing with oil, but it seems far more likely that what it is is a medicinal purpose. That this person has a physical ailment that is believed can be cured with oil. I don't even have to sell this that hard because I see all you people out on Facebook selling your oils, right? This is like an ad for essential oils. So he's saying... Just kidding. Um, He's saying, you know, that you go to the elders. The elders will provide for your actual physical need. Like as far as possible with them, they will seek medical attention for you. And it says, have them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a very abused passage. I don't know if you have heard this taught in harmful ways, but I know that I certainly have. And what I want this passage to say is the way that it's been taught wrongly. Like in my sinful, fallen heart, what I want this passage to say is, if someone I know or if I am sick and it is a bad deal, that I can go to someone who can pray the right prayer and use the right formula. Like if they say, in the name of the Lord, and if If they anoint with oil and if they're the elders and if they're righteous and they pray the prayer, then what? I'll be healed. I want that. And I don't know how many channels you get on your TV, but there are a lot of people out there who will tell you that this is exactly what you should do. And that if you are not healed as a result of someone following this formula, then it's because you lack faith. How do you like that? The double whammy. Not only are you sick, 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 but you also lack faith. Shame on you. It's a lie. It's a lie. The Lord does not give out favors depending on how righteous or unrighteous we are. He does as he pleases. He is enthroned between the cherubim. There is more going on here than that. Are you familiar with the story in Mark of the man who, his friends, he can't walk, he's a paralytic. And so his friends carry him on a mat, right? They carry him on a mat to see Jesus. And then they lower him down through the roof. I know you're all having flashbacks to Sunday school as kids, right? And they lower him down through the roof. And the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Pharisees are there. And, and Jesus turns to this man who clearly needs physical healing. And what does he say to him? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then everybody, there's like this hubbub. And Jesus turns to them and he says, what, you don't like what I said? Which is harder, to forgive his sins or to heal him? And then he says, so that you'll understand that I have power to do this, rise up, take your mat and walk. And the man is healed. 
But what was the more important healing that that man needed? What if he never walked again? So most of you guys know I had a cancer diagnosis when I was 27. I had malignant melanoma. They cut it out. Ever since then, they've been cutting on me, cutting on me, cutting on me. And I've got scars all over, scars. And so my attitude towards my scars for a long time was when I looked at them, I would think those scars are the marks of my deliverance. They're the things that show that I'm well, that I am not going to die this year. And, and so when I would look at them, that's the way that I would feel. You know, these are the marks of my healing, that I have received the medical care that I need and that the Lord is allowing me to stay and be a wife and a mom and all these things that seem really important to me. And that's what my scars meant to me. And you see, I had to have a change of perspective because those scars, not such a big deal. One day I'm going to die. It may be next year, it may be in 30 years, but one day my scarred body is going into the ground just as the paralytic's body went into the ground, just as every other person Jesus ever healed went into the ground, just as Lazarus who died once had to die again and go into the ground. Do you know why? Because the only reason that Jesus did physical healings was to demonstrate that he had the power to heal our hearts from the brokenness of sin. So it is not my scars that are the sign of my deliverance. It is his scars. It is his scars, and we are not amazed at that miracle. How can it be that we don't find it absolutely astonishing that the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross provided healing for us in a way that far exceeds anything that could happen by the laying on of hands for someone who is enduring a physical illness? That is the greater miracle. That is the truer miracle. And I think you can see it if now you look at this text. You can see where it goes. What does he say in verse 15? The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Does that verse read differently to you than it did just a minute ago? And the Lord will raise him up. When will he raise him up? On the last day. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Have you ever heard this? Well, you're sick because you're in sin. If you'd confess your sin, then you'd get well. Well, sure, if your sin is smoking 42 packs of cigarettes a day, then probably, yeah, you will probably get better if you stop doing that. But to say that there is some hidden sin in your life that is causing you to grow ill and die, I think is to really abuse what's going on here. And if you think about it, when you're in a difficult situation, we've already said, there's a whole different set of temptations that come along when you're enduring trial. So there might be things to confess. Lord, I feel fear over this. I feel, you know, all of these things that you need to, to confess. But I think in addition to that, it's saying your sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Healed of what? healed of your propensity to sin. Now, I'm not saying that this passage rules out the possibility that someone can pray for you when you are ill and you can get better because I'll tell you what, I've been there and I have prayed for a friend and she was going to die and she got better. The Lord absolutely heals people of physical illness but this is not a passage that says if you do X and Y, the Lord will do Z. It is a passage that says if you confess your sins, there is healing for you. Not the kind of healing that we think is most important, but the kind of healing that the Lord would say is absolutely most important. And it says in the second half of 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. And then it gives us this example of Elijah. And you looked at him in your homework this week. And what was the deal with Elijah? He basically said, hey, it's not going to rain for three years. And it didn't. And then at the beginning of chapter 18, if you dug through all of that, if you weren't already tired of how much homework I'd given you, Verse 1 of chapter 18, God says, go show yourself to Ahab and tell him it's going to, um, it's going to rain. 
Like it's been three years. Go show yourself to him and tell him that it's going to rain. And so he does. And then what happens? It rains. So did you catch what happened there? Why was Elijah, who's our example of the, the prayer of a righteous man that's powerful and effective, why was his prayer that the heavens be closed and the heavens be opened a powerful and effective prayer? Because he was praying what the Lord had already told him was going to happen. He was praying the revealed will of the Lord in that particular situation. So you think about what we talked about last week. What is the will of God for your life? That you be saved, that you be sanctified, that you obey, that you suffer, on and on. Do you actively pray the prayer of the righteous person by aligning your prayers with God's declared will that we looked at last week? Because that is a powerful and effective prayer. Because you're asking for the thing the Lord has already purposed to do. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Because here's the deal. We are so confused on this. The prayer of faith is a faith not in a particular outcome, but in the God of all outcomes. The prayer of faith is not faith in a particular outcome. It is a faith in the God of all outcomes. That's what it means to pray the prayer of faith. All right, we got to keep going. Oh yeah, my stopwatch is on the floor, but I can still see my little accountability partner down there. Here we go, verse 19. James is going to finish up. This is his, his last, I mean, we don't even have like a peace be with you. He doesn't peace out at the end of this. Because that's why people think it's probably like meant to be read as a sermon. Because there's no, okay, all my love, or you know, whatever. Warm regards, James. He just finishes on this final thought. And listen to what it is, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So this is a really, at first you're like, wait a minute, what just happened? We were just talking about Elijah and now we're here. But if you think about it, this is actually a very fitting way for him to end the letter because he just told us this whole section about you should pray. You should pray, right? That's Camel Knees. Remember his name was Old Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer. So he just said, you should pray, and here's how you should pray. And now, in very James-like fashion, just as he started in chapter 1 and said, does any of you need wisdom? What should he do? He should pray. And then he went on to say, but don't just pray, go and do. What is he doing here? He's just told us, if you need something, you should pray. But you know what else? Go and do. Here's what you should do. If you see a brother who's wandering, you should bring him back. Why? Because you will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, don't get the big head because that sounds a little bit like you get to be his sinless son of God savior. But when we bring a fellow brother back by pointing him back toward the truth, we are applying the gospel that does save his soul and that does cover a multitude of sins. We are being the beautiful feet on the mountaintop that brings good news to someone who needs to hear it. You don't save him. You give him the means to be restored to the one who does. By doing what? By being a peacemaker. Remember that whole discussion? Because why don't we pursue the wandering brother? We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to cause friction in a relationship. We would rather be a peacekeeper than a peacemaker. And James totally knows this about us. And so his final note is, above all things, don't forget, you are a peacemaker. 
it will require the ministry of more than halfway. You will have to go to the one who is wandering. You will have to point out what the problem is. Now here's the problem. When we read this, if we want to self-elevate by going after someone, what are we going to do? We're going to find something about someone else that makes us feel better about ourselves because we don't do it. And then we're going to go pursue them and we're going to just beat them down. And that's not what he's talking about here. You remember we talked about the kind of judging that is the good kind of judging is the kind that seeks to heal and restore, not push away and push down, not isolate. And that's what he's talking about here. And if you want to know, like, when should I do that? Like, when do I know when it's time to pursue a fellow believer who I think is kind of off the rails? It should not be an issue of your preferences. It shouldn't just be, well, I don't like the way you're doing something. It should at the very least be a conviction that you read in Scripture, and hopefully it is dealing with an essential, right? Like they've lost sight of what forgiveness is, and they now believe that they earn God's favor in a certain way, and that's the way they're acting out. That is something to go talk to someone about. But just because you don't like the way they spend their money or you don't like the way that they, um, you know, um, use their time, You have to examine whether you're doing that because it makes you feel better about yourself or because you genuinely want what the Lord has for them. It's a very difficult thing. Not clear at all and requires a lot of what James has just discussed, and that's prayer. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will offer up to him once again the very gospel of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful note to end his letter on. So I have a couple of things for you to think of this week as you go through your week. And the first is, where can you actively choose to delay gratification? That you might better be prepared for times when you have no choice but to wait. What is a small thing you could do this week that would help you to delay gratification? And the second thing is this. What are you tempted to grumble about? What hardship in your life causes you to grumble? And how can you raise your awareness that the judge is standing at the door? And the third one is, how have you misunderstood the role of prayer? Like, in what way have you thought you can obligate God to you by praying in a certain way or by having the right number of people praying or having the right oil or the right this or the right that? What are your figurative anointing with oil and words that you think that you can use in your prayers? And how can you turn prayer back over to the Lord and see it as a means of saying, not my will, but your will be done? And then lastly, is there a difficult conversation you need to have with a fellow believer? And if so, how will you speak the hardest truths to them in the absolute softest of terms? Because a soft answer turns away wrath, doesn't it? So how can you be a peacemaker by speaking hard truths in soft tones? In such a way we become ministers of the gospel of good news to those who are in the fellowship of faith with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from James. We pray, Father, that we would look to the example of the prophets, that we would look to the example of Job, and that we would look to the example of Elijah. And that when we look at these huge examples of what it means to be faithful and what it means to be steadfast and what it means to pray the prayer of faith, 
that we would be challenged and encouraged by them. And that we would know above all, as James has reassured us, that you are the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and merciful. Compassion and mercy, two attributes that you hold, that we can take on, that you will for us to have. And we ask, Father, that it be done in our hearts and that it be seen in our actions. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.